0: Well, let me begin this morning just by reading our passage. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is the Word of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the very word of God. If you want to follow along, Uh, Go ahead and grab your sermon outlines. You'll see this theme. We must decide to preach Christ crucified so that the faith of sinners might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, when I I think about this passage, I think it immediately brings up four questions. I didn't write those questions down. I hope I remember them. I think it brings up this question. Um, Why did the Corinthians want Paul to preach impressively? And and why wouldn't Paul preach impressively? A third question is if, if preaching is unimpressive, does that mean that preaching is not wise or powerful? And then then lastly, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this admonition on preaching? And I think the answer depends on whether or not our faith has landed in the wisdom of men or our faith has landed in the power of God. The Corinthian church had divided into factions based on which of their preachers they thought was the best. And what they thought was best was a preacher who spoke effectively, persuasively, convincingly, as the great sophist orators of their day did. These celebrity orators didn't have to have anything important to say, they just had to say it better. They were skillful and entertaining, and their goal was to please crowds so that crowds would approve of them and pay them money to hear them speak. It was a commercial endeavor. The popularity of oratory was second only to the popularity of athletics in the Isthmian games in Corinth. But that occasionally came around once every two years. Oratory was all year long. You know, I've said before that our understanding of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is heavily dependent on our grasp upon the Corinthian context. Grasp upon the context probably is more important in Corinthians than any of the other letters. And I don't think we easily grasp the popularity of public speaking in Corinth the way that we need to. So a guy named Stephen Tracy has collected some paragraphs from various commentaries that describe this phenomena of public speaking and the fascination with rhetorical styles in Corinth and then the and roman world at that time. I think we need to grab hold of what this looked like to imagine... Public speakers in debate, not something hidden in a small room on a college campus, but actually out in stadiums with great acclaim and great crowds. I'm going to do quite a bit of reading here because I think it's quite important for us and helpful to us. So if you get bored and start to fall asleep, just that'll be a judgment on my rhetorical style this morning, right? I'm reading. First of all, what is clear is that public speaking was wildly popular. One could almost say it was even more popular than watching gladiatorial bouts. And and they were wildly popular. At the popular level, audiences continued to lionize the orators. Now, you're going to get a lot of old names of historians and orators and people writing in ancient times. At the popular level, audiences continued to lionize the orators as Tacitus put it in his writing. The decline in eloquence was not for lack of speakers. The Greek sophists, now remember, sophist comes from the word wisdom, and it describes this school of orators, and a word Paul has been using over and over also in these verses. The Greek sophists in particular were extremely popular. Students as well as audiences flocking about their every appearance. The walls of certain cities shook with rounds of applause for them, say ancient writers. Moreover, this popularity of oratory was was very broad based. It seemed to permeate the entire Greco-Roman world from the emperors to the man in the street. For example, one ancient account says that the interest in favorinas at Rome was universal. And that all Greece proclaimed polemo. So just the, way, just the way people in the church were having their favorite preachers, that's, it kind of mirrors what they were doing with orators in the Greco-Roman world. Now, now Favorinus is, a, is an interesting character because he was so wildly popular. When he spoke in Corinth, they erected a statue of him, and they set it at the entrance to the library where everyone would see him and associate it with his knowledge. But later, after he had left the city, they had heard rumors and some bad reports about him, and so they tore the statue down and smashed it into pieces. You see, the, the tide can go either way. So everyone was drawn to public speaking of all things. I'm reading. Dale was expressing the feelings of the multitude as much as his own when he spoke of the uncontrolled craving which possesses me for the spoken word. What was popular in every city in the Greco-Roman world was an orator. When one arrived in a city, everybody went wild. They flocked to hear him. Plenty writes to a friend. Rejoice, I tell you, on my account, and on your own, no less for our country, for oratory is still held in honor. I was on my way the other day to plead before the court. There was no room left for me to reach my place except by way of the district bench. Uh, my district bench, though through the assembled ranks of the rest of the floor, was crowded. And then a young patrician, who had his clothing torn, as often happens in a crowd, stayed on, clad in nothing but his toga to listen for seven hours, which was the length of the speech that I made. Now now here's a bit that mixes the perspective of the public speaker in. Another enthusiastic ancient Greek writing says, What a supreme delight it is to gather yourself to your feet and take your stand before a hushed audience that has eyes only for you. Think of the growing crowd streaming around the speaker and taking on any mood in which he may care to wrap himself. It is the notorious delights of speech-making that I am enumerating. Those are in full view, even of the uninitiated." Well, what's the uninitiated? Well, even, in, even the uneducated, classless people love to listen to public speakers. Even if they didn't understand the point, they loved the exercise. It was spellbinding. Use your imagination just a little bit. Can you see the crowds? As if filling Fenway Park? Can you hear their cheering? Like a million Swifties at a concert? Can you relate it all to their passion? As, As they walk away, retelling their favorite parts. Remember when he said this? Yeah, and then he said that. Oh, that was awesome. Now, there are risks involved in this celebrity class. But there were also great benefits. You could lose everything if the crowd turned against you. But but you could also gain the world. I'm reading. Despite large risks to the orators, the potential rewards of eloquence were even greater. Just as the audience could dash the orator to the ground, so it could raise him to the heights and bestow on him every benefit of society. Fame! admiration, honor, glory, wealth, privilege, power, advancement. Such were the proper rewards of oratory. This was a point never driven home more forcefully than by Apper. Oratory, he says, a profession than which you cannot imagine any in the whole country more productive of practical benefits, or that carried with it a sweeter sense of satisfaction or that does more to enhance a man's personal standing or that brings more honor and renown or that secures a more brilliant reputation throughout the empire and the whole world at large. Wow! Are you grasping this? If you want fame and fortune, learn public speaking. And if skilled rhetoric and oratory was the way to succeed in the whole Greco-Roman civilization, Why wouldn't you apply that in the church? Now here's the critical point to remember. Like the gladiator in the arena, the orator was open to the judgment of the crowd. In fact, that's the whole point. The orator speaks in order to be judged by the crowd. Let me read. As we've seen, Greek and Roman audiences from the very beginning have grasped and relished their role as judges. Indeed, this can only be what we mean when we say that oratory flourished in antiquity. Their attitude seemed to be that when an orator took to his feet, he was fair game for whatever he received, whether applause or derision. If he was not willing to undergo such judgment, he ought not enter the lists. Orators and oratory existed to be evaluated, and relentlessly evaluated they were. Not merely on the occasion of the speech, But seemingly afterwards, those who had heard of or read the oration later, comparing and contrasting orators was their favorite pastime, some preferring one speaker, others preferring another. When judging rhetoric, it wasn't necessary that what was said was the truth. It could be the truth, but over time, what became more valued than truth was entertainment. So the city of Corinth was judging speakers, not on the truth of their arguments, but on the entertainment value of their speaking. Now we can see that Paul is using loaded words in Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He's using the very words of rhetoric, words that the sophists used one way and that Paul uses another way. The Greek word logos is speech and message and words in this passage. The Greek word Sophia is wisdom, words of wisdom, rest on wisdom. Paul uses in this passage, even the word demonstration is a loaded word. In this passage, Paul is commenting on his first arrival in Corinth. And when I came to you, brothers, he's going back in time. And when I came to you, brothers, when Paul entered the city to herald the gospel of the cross, listen to how one commentator explains how the professional orators entered a town. The educational method by which the sophists, the wise word men, imparted their training has been called collective tutoring. For large fees, they contracted to undertake the entire training of the young man entrusted to their care. The sophists did not find any customers waiting for them, but they had to go out and persuade the public to take advantage of their service. Hence arose a whole publicity system. The sophists went from town to town in search of pupils taking those he had already managed to catch with him. To make himself known, to demonstrate the excellence of his teaching, and to give a sample of his skill, he would give a sample lecture when he arrived. The sample lecture, this demonstration lecture, was called an epideixis. So that's a Greek word. So in verse 1, Paul is saying to the church, When I first came to you in Corinth, this is what you thought I was doing. You thought I was just giving you the demonstration lecture to recruit students who would follow me and then pay me money because I was seeking fame and fortune through public speaking. That's what you thought I was doing when I came into town. You expected to hear a demonstration of my preaching rhetoric with lofty logos words and to judge me based on the demonstration of my Sophia wisdom. But that's not what I was doing at all. I wasn't giving you an epideixis, a demonstration of me. I came with an apodixis. That's the word Paul uses here. A demonstration of someone else. Someone else entirely. He says that in verse 4. My words were not a sample of my skills, but another's power. It's an altogether different thing. In chapter 1, verse 17, Paul tells the church, Christ sent me to preach the cross, not with words of eloquent wisdom, not to please man, not to entertain. So now, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul reminds them that he indeed did not come to them with lofty speech and human wisdom, that would empty the cross of its power and put the focus on Paul himself. Let's make sure we've got this straight. Here's what Paul has told us. Jesus sends his apostle Paul to Corinth where the one thing they demand is impressive public speaking. And when Paul arrives in Corinth, he speaks unimpressively. What kind of evangelism strategy is that? Well, it looks like a really weak evangelism strategy. It looks like a powerless Church growth strategy. Could that be the weakness in which Paul says he came to them in verse 3? He says, I came to you in weakness. I think it could be. You may be wondering did Paul have the potential to be an impressive speaker? Well, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, just over a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and look at verse 10 with me. Paul has detractors in the church still, and he's writing to them, and this is what he says: they are saying about him in Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse ten. For they say of me, Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Wow! <clears throat> they say, Paul, you're man. Your letters. Are powerful. Your, your letters pack a punch. Your letters are really impressive. Too bad composition isn't the same as oratory, because your oratory is pathetic. His physical appearance is weak, and his speech isn't worth listening to. You see, I think that Paul was entirely capable of demonstrating sophistic rhetoric if he wanted to. In fact, I think he was was fearful that he might. Highly educated and experienced in forceful public speaking. I think Paul knows that he had it within himself to empty the cross of its power if he crossed that line. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul goes into Corinth, that's our record, there is no mention of any attesting miracles. Did you know that? There's no record of any attesting miracles to boost the credibility of his preaching of the cross as there were in other towns when he preached the message of the cross. It was just going to be the plain speaking of the wisdom of God versus the spectacular preaching of the wisdom of men. Paul himself argues that it is entirely appropriate for him to receive financial support from the church. And in some towns, he receives it. But in Corinth, he does not. For the sake of his audience. See, Paul is working an entirely different angle than the sophists seeking riches. When when he came into town, he joins Priscilla and Aquila in their tent-making business, and he supports himself financially. Why? Because there was a hitch with the Corinthians about making money and aggrandizing yourself. So when asked asked how rich and successful their preacher was, (laughs) the, the church had to admit That he actually had to take a day, day job to make ends meet. He didn't make any money from his oratory. Well, he doesn't sound very successful and rich as our famous orators do. Nope. Paul was waiting to be rewarded by believers in his message of Christ crucified. Paul was working for the fame of Jesus and the faith of the sinners in Corinth. Paul was doing a completely different thing. Do you see how important this background is? Do you see how knowing this background and a little bit of imagination makes the context of the church in Corinth kind of come alive? What did the Corinthians want? They wanted to be entertained, or we might say, theotained. <clears throat> they wanted to be entertained with some type of theological presentation. And and Paul was determined to not give them what he knew they wanted. Why? Because he dare not distract them from the mystery of God that he came to proclaim. You know, for centuries, uh, the church has not known exactly how to translate the phrase here in verse 1, as the testimony of God, or as the mystery of God. Both are, both are fine. If you're reading in the ESV, down at the, you'll notice a footnote at the bottom that says this can be translated mystery. I lean towards the mystery of God, given that Paul has gone to great lengths here to explain that the wisdom of God for salvation is a mystery to men. It has to be revealed by God to them. They can't know God by their own knowing. And he has revealed it to them in Christ. Either way, Paul is testifying about Jesus who was revealed to him and he refused to know anything else Paul will not entertain people for personal approval he will not seek the approval of men the church is not here to seek the approval of men he will go on saying words like cross words like Christ crucified it's God's message not Paul's he'll go on preaching in unimpressive ways and people will go on judging his preaching as weak and foolish. But he will not preach in any way that would distract them from the content of his message, which is, dear sinner, believers, Jesus saves. That's the one thing he did not do when he came to Corinth. But what are the things that he did do when he came to Corinth? Look again in verse 2. He lists the things that he did do. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. In order to be successful, the Sophists did not have to have or excuse me, the, the sophists did have to have a lot of language. <clears throat> they needed to be able to speak intelligently on many subjects. Arts, literature, culture, politics, geography, economics, military heroes. It's kind of like being on Jeopardy. They needed to be able to talk about a lot of things. Paul only had one subject. It's the only one he bothered to speak. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the only thing Paul needed to know. It's the only thing Paul needed to speak about when he went to Corinth. Paul proclaimed nothing but Jesus Christ. So that's one thing that he did. He did some other things. He came in weakness. Now, this could refer to Paul's physical weakness as a result of the many hardships he suffered. In Acts, in Acts chapter 9, I'm thinking back when Jesus, when Jesus called Paul to be his apostle, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So it could be a physical weakness, but I'm inclined to think. There might be something more profound in this weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is still writing strong words to the church. And and he says this about Jesus. For he was crucified in weakness. Jesus was crucified in weakness. As Christ's messenger, I think Paul is identifying with the originator of his message. He's identifying himself with Christ and his weakness. And I've come to you in weakness. Because he goes on to say this, For we also are weak in him. Paul didn't come to Corinth dressed for success. He didn't swagger and act boldly and powerfully. That wouldn't fit the message of salvation through Christ nailed to a cross. No. Paul's pathway to power was through the weakness of Christ crucified. The only thing he knew was the only thing he needed to know. Paul proclaimed Christ crucified in weakness. And he proclaimed Christ crucified in fear and much trembling. Corinth may have been an intimidating place to Paul for various reasons. Uh, For example, if public speakers were really bad, Paul could be rejected violently. He had almost lost his life more than once in far less judgy towns, hadn't he? Paul was preaching with one arm tied behind his back, so to speak. He couldn't use the rhetorical methods of the sophist, with which he could gain a bigger and a more more appreciative audience. And then again, God would not work any attesting miracles for the people in Corinth to see. Those attention-getters were not in his toolbox this time. It was just Paul and the gospel. When I think about what would really make Paul tremble with godly fear, I wonder if this isn't the idea that people could actually think more of him than the message that he preached. Remember how in Lystra they tried to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods? I mean, it's not unheard of. It's already tried, it's already happened before in how tragically ironic it would be for Paul to achieve worldly success as a public speaker in Corinth while at the same time being an utter failure as a preacher of the cross for Christ. In some way, I think just the sheer weight of the task of preaching Christ, the wisdom and power of God, may have burdened Paul as he came into Corinth. So Paul decided Not, excuse me, Paul decided not to demonstrate his logos, his words, and human Sophia, wisdom, but to demonstrate something else entirely. The power of the sophists was in themselves. The power of Paul's preaching was in the Spirit. In the face of overwhelming expectations for Paul to put himself forward, Paul put Christ crucified forward. In verse 4, Paul's logos, his message, was not their logos. Their words. He was not demonstrating the power of his rhetorical skill by his preaching. Rather, his preaching of Christ crucified was a demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God. Paul has already shown that Christ is the wisdom and the power of God to save. What he's fighting for here is for the church to trust that preaching this gospel is then an act of trust in the Spirit and the power of God. And why should the Corinthians believe him? Because they themselves are the living proof that that's true. The evidence of the power of preaching the cross was the converted Corinthians. Look at verse 5. Why did he preach this way when he came to them? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The evidence of the power of preaching the cross was the converted Corinthians. Just because people who didn't like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that his speech was of no account doesn't mean it was true. Paul's preaching content and preaching style proved the the Spirit's power to save. How? By delivering the Corinthians' faith in the wisdom of men over to and placing it in the power of God, who is Christ crucified. Paul is writing to believers in the church. He says, here's how it worked with you. You know, it's such a well-known quote, I'm not sure who to attribute it to. I've always attributed it to D.L. Moody. He and others have said about preaching, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. That's that's the issue that Paul's addressing here. What if you win them to your creative speaking, but not to Christ? What if you win them to your creative use of technology in the worship service? What if you win them to those, those tugs on their heartstrings with emotionally charged stories? What if you win them to manipulate their feelings with extended chord progressions in the background as you pray breathy words? What if you win them with a popular vibe, which really only reflects the current fad? What if you win them to your worship experience but never win them to Christ? What if your church is growing, but it's not growing a vibrant faith in Christ? What if perhaps, without realizing it, kind of like the church in Corinth, you've shifted your focus from the cross to the culture, thinking you could do a better job that way? We have to stop and say, well, how good of a speaker was Paul? Because he was moderating something, right? Where did he draw the line? Paul wants to persuade. (laughs) Paul's, Paul's preaching his heart out to persuade. He just doesn't want to persuade in the wrong way, and therefore persuade people to the wrong thing. Paul goes for the heart. That's where he's going. You see, there's a a bit of a battle in the church today between anthropology, our study of man, and culture. I'll throw in sociology as well. And theology, our understanding of God. And, And I'll throw in the church, our ecclesiology as well. Which one, if we focus on it, is going to give us a better, more effective ministry? Which one should we give more weight to? See, Paul totally understands anthropology and the sociology of Corinth. He's not foolish. He understands it. He gets it. But he does not tailor his ministry to suit man and culture. Paul's theology drives his ministry. He's a servant of Christ, so he proclaims Christ. He does what Christ wants him to do. And he lets the Spirit of God use the proclaimed Word of God to accomplish the saving and sanctifying purposes of God for the church of God. I think Paul pursues excellence. (laughs) I don't think this is a, hey, do a sloppy job. No, I I think he pursues excellence. I think he wants to present Christ clearly and understandably, but in the right way. Think about this church. Do we have room in our worship service for a little more technology? Yes, I think we do. How about more musicians? Sure. Do we even have room for improved public speaking? Absolutely. We have margin to pursue excellence in many areas without actually getting to the point of distracting from the cross. And deciding where that line is may be more art than science, but don't let your study of current culture tell you where that line is. The far bigger thing is theological direction. Set the worship vibe aside for just a moment. What theological directions do churches develop that give people what they want but distract from the cross. That's specifically what Paul's addressing here. I can think of three. People want therapy. So say things that help my marriage, help my family, help me navigate the workplace. Does Jesus help with those things? Yes. But those things are not Christ crucified. As good as they are, if those things are your message, where will people's faith land? Here's a second one. People crave community. And so you can say things that draw us together with other people we like. Plan fun events for us. Give us options. Give us a safe place to go. Can a church do those things? Yes. But what do they have to do with the cross? Harmless as they might be, value adds as they might be, can they distract from Christ crucified? Third, people demand affirmation of their personal identity. We are a hyper-psychologized people. Everything is all about who I think I am. That's identity today. And so, you can say things to culture like things that would affirm my gender orientation and use my personal pronoun. Affirm my sexual orientation and celebrate my same-sex marriage. Affirm all birthing person's legal right to an abortion. Can the church affirm any of those things? No. But take a drive around town and you'll find many churches that do. Many so-called churches that do. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, preach Christ crucified, preach the cross, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It was already happening Two millennia ago. It's only compounded since then. Why is Paul so adamant to preach the cross when people want to hear something else? So that their faith will land in the power of God to save. And then to be kept by the power of God to save. Sinners are already captive to the wisdom of men and to worldly powers. The message of the cross is already foolishness to them who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, Christ crucified is the saving wisdom of God and the saving power of God. We're not after the applause of men. We will experience the increasing rejection of men. But those facts don't determine what we say to men. Or how we say it. We must be determined to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that the faith of the people of the greater Portland, Maine area would rest not in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we would like to be successful and well thought of. We admit that as a church, we'd like to be successful and well thought of. And yet, Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to be faithful to you, to serve only you, because yours is the only message that brings life to dead people. And so we pray that you would help us to preach Christ crucified and that you would do the work of saving sinners into your kingdom. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.